This is Shakespeare Unbarred, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare one play at a time. Today, one of Shakespeare's most glorious, if depressing, tragedies, it's time for King Lear. What can you say to draw a third more opulent than your sisters? (laughs) Speak. Nothing, my lord. Thou nature art my goddess. I know thee. What dost thou know me for? A knave, a rascal, an eater of broken meat. Poor Tully God, poor Tom. That's something yet, Edgar, I nothing am. Low winds and crack your cheeks. Men of stones, and I your tongues and eyes, I'd use them so that heaven's vault should crack. Alright, as always, we're gonna start with a short summary. How short? Siri, set the timer for one minute. Done. I love a good countdown. All is rotten in the state of England. King Lear has divided his kingdom among his two eldest daughters and exiled his youngest Cordelia after she insults him in open court. He also exiles the Earl of Kent, one of his most loyal earls, who nonetheless returns to England to serve his master in disguise. Meanwhile, Edmund, the bastard son of the Duke of Gloucester, contrives to make his father suspect Edgar, his legitimate son, of being a traitor. Edgar also goes in exile, and like Kent, disguises himself as a beggar. After Lear is treated poorly by Reagan, Kent pays a visit to Gonrail, where he's thrown into the stocks, prompting an estrangement between Lear and Gonrail that leads to Lear wandering England without a place to live. His mind goes, but Kent, along with Edgar and Lear's loyal fool, stay loyal. Political skullduggery follows, resulting in Gloucester being blinded for being a traitor and Cordelia returning now as the Queen of France to help restore Lear to the throne. It does not go well, and Lear and Cordelia are thrown into jail. Lear's daughters join forces, only to be divided over the mutual lust for Edmund, Gonrail poisons Reagan, and later kills herself. Meanwhile, the fool is hung, Gloucester dies, Cordelia is executed, Lear dies her broken heart, and the kingdom is given to Edgar and Kent to rule together, though Kent rejects the offer and follows his master to the other world instead. No man will ever write a better tragedy than Lear, said George Bernard Shaw, leaving the door wide open for some woman playwright to someday trump Shakespeare at his own game. Now normally I try to avoid hyperbolic remarks like Mr. Shaw's, but in this case, I'm going to agree. King Lear is a play where practically everyone dies, even those who don't deserve it. And hey, what's more tragic than that? Now, there's no mystery as to how the apotheosis of the tragedy of King Lear occurred. Aside from being a remarkable play, it has remained attractive to theatre companies because of its army of rich roles for men, women, and fools alike. Although based on a tiny piece of British history, the play does not demand a knowledge of England's line of succession to follow the plot, and there's enough murder, madness, intrigue, sex, and, yes, even a little comedy to keep many a theatre-goer quite content. There's not a thankless role in the play, which is more than can be said for some of Shakespeare's other roles. Ask anyone who ever played Andrew Aguecheek in Twelfth Night if you don't believe me. Even the smallest roles in King Lear are important. Consider that random servant in Act 3 who finds his morality and delivers a death blow to Albany all in the space of a minute. Some compare King Lear to Hamlet in terms of its power, but while the two plays are similar in reputation, Lear has more in common with the plays of the Henriad and Julius Caesar. All these are concerned with the questions of leadership, kingship, and masculine loyalty. Julius Caesar, written five years before, is focused on the shifting loyalties between Brutus, Cassius, Mark Antony, and Caesar himself. In King Lear, Shakespeare pulls a similar trick with another quartet, Edmund, Edgar, Kent, and Lear. For all the importance of Lear's daughters to the action of the play, the women aren't really Shakespeare's concern. None of them are ever seen alone, save for a brief moment in the first scene, where Cordelia reveals, mostly for our benefit, that Gonrail and Regan are not what they seem. After that, 
the women are only on stage when the men are there too. In Julius Caesar, the title character is a catalyst for the action rather than the story's actual hero. Similarly, the tragedy of King Lear is not actually about King Lear. Theater people will try to argue this because it has become conventional wisdom that since Lear is often played by a great actor, it follows that the great actor is the play's main character. Now, this is the same trick producers have pulled with Othello. The actor of prestige is always the more Venice, which helps us forget that Iago is the main character of the play. There are few great roles for the elder statesmen of the theater, and in Lear, the actor-managers of the 17th and 18th centuries saw a chance to prove that they could still strut their stuff. In the modern day, nothing has changed. All great actors eventually play Lear. Ian McKellen, Christopher Plummer, even Glenda Jackson. But I'm never all that interested in who was cast as the titular king. He is not the story's main character, and a modern dramaturge would probably advise Shakespeare to cut some of Lear's speeches so he stopped stealing the spotlight from everyone else. As written, King Lear is much like Falstaff, a magnificent literary creation that has come to overshadow the play in which he is in. To borrow the famed term coined by Alfred Hitchcock, Lear is a MacGuffin, albeit in human form. He is the thing that propels the plot, and which the other characters struggle to obtain, destroy, or protect. His madness, aside from being a delight for clever actors, is a plot point designed to promote the play's central dramatic question. Do kings still deserve our loyalty, even if they are no longer fit to rule? Consider Lear's trajectory. In the first scene, he divides his kingdom, exiles Cordelia, banishes Kent, and wanders away. Rejected by his other children, he wanders into the wilderness, descends into madness, and becomes lucid enough to realize his mistakes before he dies of a broken heart. Now, Lear has many fine speeches, and his character is a glorious meditation on age and grief. His speeches are moving, but they are not part of the momentum that propels the narrative along. It could even be argued that after the third act, Lear's speeches tend to stop the narrative in its tracks. This is mostly because, by Act 3, Lear ceases to be an active player in the story. He is so unimportant to Edmund, the play's main antagonist, that Edmund never once addresses him. Lear is actually just swept along from one scene to the next by others. The story he is caught up in is not his own. Critics like Harold Bloom like to suggest that Lear is better read than performed. Setting aside the problem with this thesis, Shakespeare was meant to be performed, not read, I can sympathize with Bloom's assertion that he has never seen a production of Lear that he liked. As long as producers insist on pretending Lear is the main character, they will always be performing the wrong play. It is Kent, Edgar, and Edmund who deserve our attention. This play is entirely about them. The cover of the first quattro tells us of Shakespeare's intent. Aside from this being the, quote, true chronicle history of the life and death of King Lear and his three daughters, the quattro makes certain that you know the play also details, quote, the unfortunate life of Edgar, son and heir to the Earl of Gloucester, and his sullen and assumed humor of Tom of Bedlam. Shakespeare should have mentioned Kent on the title page, although I'm not surprised he didn't, since everyone else tends to forget about him. Most scholars tend to ignore poor Kent. And when was the last time a theater company announced that an actor of prestige had been given this pivotal role? All this is unpardonable, since whether Shakespeare intended it or not, Kent emerges as the play's essential protagonist, and apart from Edgar and Cordelia, he is the play's most sympathetic character. Almost the entire story is filtered through his eyes. 
Kent is one of the first people on stage and is present throughout the crucial first scene. Of all the assembled courtiers and lords, he is the only one who dares to speak truth to power when Lear turns on Cordelia after she refuses to embark on his ritualized show of love. Cordelia's decision to defy her father is not half so important to the play's story as everyone else's reaction to it. Does Gloucester defend her? Do her sisters? No. Of everyone present, only Kent comes forth. He instantly becomes our hero because he is the only one to leap to the defense of the innocent. Royal Lear, whom I have ever honored as my king, loved as my father, as my master, followed as my great patron, thought and in my prayers. The bow is bent and drawn, make from the shaft. Let it fall, rather, though the folk invade the region of my heart. Be Kent unmannerly when Lear is mad? Hmm? What wouldst thou do, old man? Thinkst thou that duty shall have dread to speak when power to flattery bows, to plainness honours bound, when majesty falls, to folly? Reserve thy state, and in thy best consideration check this hideous rashness. Answer my life, my judgment, thy youngest daughter does not love thee least, nor are those empty-hearted whose low sounds reverb no hollowness. Kent on thy life no more. My life I never held but as a pawn to wage against thine enemies, ne'er fear to lose it, thy safety being motive. Out of my sight! See better, Leah! And let me still remain the true blank of thine eye. Now by Apollo... Now by Apollo, king, thou swearest thy gods in vain. Oh, vessel miscreant. <laughs> Dear sir, forbear. Kill thy physician and thy feeble stop on the foul disease. Revoke thy gift. It's possible Kent is motivated by love for Cordelia, but if so, it's a paternal affection. His behavior is actually motivated solely out of a fight for justice. Like Cordelia, he is an idealist, and like Cordelia, he receives banishment as his reward. But while Cordelia accepts her punishment and disappears for the next three acts, Kent promptly returns in disguise and once again puts himself in Lear's service. From here, the story unfolds with Kent and us as witness to the tragedy that befalls the king. Despite being banished, Kent is loyal to a fault, such that after getting thrown into the stocks, he still cries out to Lear to save him. It is Kent, along with Edgar and the Fool, who becomes Lear's chief protector, shuffling him from hovel to heath. It is also Kent who summons Cordelia and all of France to come to Lear's aid. Kent demonstrates heroic fidelity throughout the entire play, and yet he is often relegated to being a secondary character to most scholars, as if Shakespeare only put him in to kill time until Lear could rail against another storm. Kent is to Lear what Mark Antony is to Julius Caesar, but he doesn't get his moment in the sun like Mark Antony does. Antony is a coveted role because of his funeral oration in Act 3. I don't know anyone except myself who watches King Lear and dreams of playing Kent. This is because Kent is just as loyal as Mark Antony and just as fierce. He goes to war for Lear, both literally and figuratively, and he's the play's last casualty, the last body to fall at the end of the fifth act. The Duke has given Kent the opportunity to rule England along with Edgar, but Kent has other ideas. I have a journey, sir, shortly to go. My master calls me. I must not say no. What journey is he referring to? It is to Hamlet's undiscovered country, for what is left for Kent now that his king is gone. Kent's suicide, and I'm certain that's what it is, is the most agonizing of all the depths of the play, even more so than that of Cordelia. 
Lear was his reason for living, and without him, Kent is done with this world. In a sense, the entire play barrels towards this last act of despair, for once Kent sees the people of his country act as they have acted, he's left with the choice of whether to rebuild the world or abandon it. Edgar has the same choice, but he chooses life. Kent, infected with despair, has survived far too much. The wonder, he says of Lear, is that he hath endured so long. Given the ordeals of the play, Kent could easily be talking about himself. Before we ever meet Lear or his daughters, Kent is introduced to the Duke of Gloucester's sons. There's no doubt that this is Edmund's first time in court. Kent knows of him, but has never met him, and Gloucester admits that until now, he has, quote, blushed to acknowledge him, end quote. His reasons for keeping Edmund a secret are clear enough. Edmund is the son of a prostitute, born in a brothel, but raised in court. No reason is given as to why Gloucester would take charge of Edmund. He says only that the, quote, whore son must be acknowledged, end quote. But one can assume that the mother was dear to him in some way, probably dearer than his legal wife, who was never mentioned at all. The laws of the day have condemned Edmund. He stands in plague custom, and so he decides to better himself. Wherefore should I stand in the plague of custom and permit the curiosity of nations to deprive me for that I am some twelve or fourteen moonshines lag of a brother? Why bastard? Wherefore base, when my dimensions are as well compact, my mind as generous and my shape as true as honest madam's issue? Why brand they us with base? With baseness? Bastardy base? Base who in the lusty stealth of nature take more composition and fierce quality than doth within a dull, stale, tired bed go to the creating a whole tribe of fops got tween asleep and wake. Well then, legitimate Edgar, I must have your land. Our father's love is to the bastard Edmund as to the legitimate. His father's love. Here's the rub to steal from Hamlet. King Lear's dramatic question is how a kingdom should deal with a mad king, but this is just a metaphor. Kings are fathers to their subjects, after all, so the real dramatic concern is one of fathers and sons. If this sounds familiar, it's because Shakespeare tackled the theme in the two plays about Henry IV. If you need a quick refresher, feel free to consult your Shakespeare unbarred handbook. In Henry IV, the father figures of Henry IV and Northumberland are juxtaposed with Falstaff, while all of them grapple with their paternal affections for Prince Al and Hotspur. Here, in King Lear, Shakespeare tackles a similar set of juxtapositions. Lear wants love from his daughters, and punishes Cordelia when she refuses to publicly give it. Kent considers Lear as a father figure, recall when he said he loved the king as he had loved his own father, and Edmund is angered that his own father won't acknowledge him. Edmund's vengeance, not accidentally, is to strip Edgar of his father's love. It is significant, then, when Edmund betrays his father to Cornwall, that the Duke promises that Edmund shall, quote, find a dearer father in my love, end quote. Edgar has no patience for women and never once talks to them. His interest is entirely in Gloucester, his real father, and Lear, his regal one. Cordelia, the fool, and the poor banished Kent spend the entire play proving their love for Lear. Lear is the father figure to everyone in his camp. The fool is doted on as if he were a favorite son, while Kent pledges fidelity despite being condemned. 
Edgar shows a similar devotion to the father who banished him after Gloucester has his eyes plucked out for Darren to protect Lear. He too is loyal to the paternal king. Give me thy arm, says Edgar, still in disguise. Poor Tom shall lead thee. The play's most moving scenes involve parents and their children, Lear carrying Cordelia's body, and Edgar, the banished son, leading the blinded father who banished him across a barren wasteland. King Lear isn't truly about the politics of England, it's a play about a bunch of children craving the affection of their parents. Edmund lashes out when he doesn't get it. So too, incidentally, do Gonrail and Reagan. Why are they both so cruel to Lear? It is because he had the audacity to divide the kingdom between them. Each sister would have preferred for Lear to pick her above the other, and thus prove he loves them the best of all. Their competition for Edmund's affections is an extension of this conflict. The sisters are forever at war with one another. With King Lear, Shakespeare was continuing the meditation on loyalty he explored in Julius Caesar, Hamlet, and even as far back as Two Gentlemen of Verona, where Proteus betrays Valentine for the sake of Sylvia's heart. In almost every scene of King Lear, someone's loyalty is tested or someone is being betrayed. In Julius Caesar, the question was political loyalty, but here the politics of the state are mixed up with that of the family. Cordelia, innocent waif that she is, is betrayed by her father, her sisters, and the scoundrel Duke of Burgundy when he casts her aside. Gonwill and Regan betray their father, their husbands, and alast each other. Gloucester betrays Lear by siding with the Duke of Cornwall, but then he betrays Cornwall by shifting back to Lear. Edmund spends the entire play betraying everyone. Edmund who, it should be recalled, was created by an act of betrayal thanks to Gloucester's adultery. In Henry IV, Shakespeare had an optimistic view of family relations. Prince Hal reconciles with his father, after all. But in King Lear, his outlook is much more bleak. If King Lear has a flaw for me, it's in the roles for women. To be honest, I can never keep Gonrail and Reagan straight, and I'm not entirely sure Shakespeare wanted you to. Like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, they seem perfectly interchangeable. They are, of course, the wicked stepsisters of fairy tales, which makes sense since King Lear's entire premise seems to be the opening of a story of the Brothers Grimm. Once upon a time, there was a king who wanted to divide up his kingdom and asked his children who loved him best. Of course, he has three daughters, what fairy tale king doesn't, and of course, Cordelia the youngest is the best of them all. Most fairy tales would have followed the trials of that youngest child as they work to redeem themselves. Instead, Shakespeare follows Edgar and Kent and abandons Cordelia altogether. Cordelia's absence makes her significantly uninteresting, and though I appreciate the fact that she returns at the head of the French army, I haven't seen her for most of the play, so really in the end, I don't really care. Critics seem to adore Cordelia, but for the life of me, I can't imagine why. Shakespeare seemed happy to send her off to France and only bring her back in time for her tragic end. I'm not sure I blame him, since there is little in Cordelia that is extraordinary. When Lear asks her to profess her love, she chooses to parse words. Good my lord, you have begot me, bred me, loved me. I return those duties back as our right fit, obey you, love you, and most honor you. Why have my sisters husbands, if they say they love you all? Haply when I shall wed, that lord whose hand must take my plight shall carry half my love with him, half my care and duty. Sure, I shall never marry like my sisters, to love my father all. In other words, she declares that she can't possibly love her father with all her heart, and she has to say some of that love for her husband. If her sisters truly love Lear with all their heart, it must mean their marriages are very bad indeed. 
I mean, Cordelia talks like she's a contract lawyer trying to escape an ugly clause. I love your majesty, she says, according to my bond, no more, no less. There is nothing absurd in Lear's displeasure. In the book Backwards and Forwards, David Ball points out that this scene is part of a public ceremony in which everyone is expected to play a certain role. Cordelia has her part, but she doesn't play it. She embarrasses Lear in front of everyone. Now, why does she do this? Shakespeare doesn't tell us, so we can only guess that Cordelia is simply taking a stand out of principle. She doesn't much care for this ceremonial show of affection in which everyone strokes her father's ego. It's a principled stance, but it's also a foolish one, and it's something that dooms everyone in the play. If Cordelia had just swallowed her pride and played the game of politics, nothing would have gone rotten in the state of England. Instead, she decides to humiliate her father. Lear is now both wounded, both as a king and a man. His daughter and subject has just said, in essence, that she loves him just as much as she has to. His anger is, in other words, completely understandable, even if his reaction isn't. Cordelia does have my sympathy, but it's only because her punishment never quite fits her crime. I pity her, as I would pity the pickpocket who was sentenced to death. Edmund's sexual liaison with Gonrail is fascinating. If he sees Cornwall as a father figure, then he must see Gonrail as a maternal one. His lust for Reagan is far different, and herein lies his conflict. This may be why poor Edmund can't quite choose between the two. To both these sisters have I sworn my love, each jealous of the other as the stung are of the adder. Which of them shall I take? Both, one, or neither? Neither can be enjoyed if both remain alive. To take the widow exasperates, makes mad her sister Goneril, and hardly shall I carry out my side, her husband being alive. Now then, we'll use his countenance for the battle, which being done, let her who would be rid of him devise his speedy taking off. <laughs> As for the mercy which he intends to Lear and to Cordelia, the battle done, and they within our power shall never see his pardon. For my state stands on me to defend, not to debate. Like Cordelia, Gonrail and Reagan never become the focus of the play. They live on the periphery, moving in and out of the story, usually on the arms of men. It's fun to see female villains, Shakespeare only really gave us a handful of them, but the text doesn't give us many opportunities to feel any sympathy for them. They are never alone on stage and have no soliloquies in which they, like Richard III or Iago, try to win us to their sides. Actors cast in their roles need to be wary of making them into Cinderella's evil stepsisters, which is to say completely one-dimensional. As I've said, I think each of them is actually seeking love. Clearly, they never found it in Lear. They turn to their husbands and then to Edmund. Both sisters are obviously starved for affection. It is in this that we glimpse their humanity, and it is this that actors should be encouraged to explore. All that being said, King Lear remains one of Shakespeare's most superb plays, but as with Hamlet, we run a risk when we put it on a pedestal that's too high to reach. King Lear should have the same wide appeal as, say, Romeo and Juliet, especially in the modern age. There's nothing in his tale of divided loyalties that wouldn't make for a successful show on HBO. King Lear was Game of Thrones before there was Game of Thrones. The final act is the Red Wedding without the bother of an actual wedding. True, its bleak outlook will always turn some people away. In the 17th and 18th centuries, the play was largely altered and performed in a version, usually the one by Nahum Tate, in which everyone survives and Edgar and Cordelia are married off. 
The great actor Edmund Keen rescued the original text at the start of the 19th century, and these days, the play's nihilism has remained. Measure for Measure gave us a Vienna filled with corruption, All's Well That Ends Well was a love story about two people who live unhappily ever after, and Othello was a Faustian tale in which the devil Iago proved that our worst instincts will always prevail, but King Lear trumps them all when it comes to a dark, unhappy vision of the world. In King Lear, families turn on each other, betrayal and cruelty prevail, and the final moment of the play features Shakespeare's most despairing suicide, a man who chooses death over living a moment longer in an England that has gone to rot. Romeo and Juliet dies so that the Montagues and Capulets can stop fighting. Hamlet dies so that there will no longer be anything wrong in Denmark. But in King Lear, the deaths accomplish nothing. Sacrifices are in vain, and there is little reason to hope for the future of either England or humanity as a whole. King Lear is a triumph of playwriting, but also of pessimism, and its despair will continue to infect almost all of Shakespeare's plays from now until the moment when he finally lay down his sword. And now comes the part in the podcast where I talk about film versions of the play I've discussed. There are plenty of versions of King Lear for a person to sink their teeth into, but the one I'm most enchanted with these days is Trevor Nunn's production from 2008. As with Kenneth Branagh's epic version of Hamlet, this is set in a pseudo-Russian universe of the late 19th century, with Lear's fall echoing that of the Russian Empire in the years preceding World War I. McKellen is extraordinary as Lear, and Jonathan Hyde excels as the Earl of Kent. The rest of the cast is composed of British stalwarts and are all uniformly excellent. Based on Nunn's own stage version, this was filmed for British television back in 2008, and it's less a proper movie than it is a filmed stage production. That being said, it still remains my favorite of all the Lears, both because of the production itself and because it maintains most of the script. Oh yes, if you are planning to sit through this, get comfortable, because it's nearly three hours long. While this is my favorite pick, you really do have a lot to choose from, including Jean-Luc Godard's bizarre adaptation that features Woody Allen as the fool, or the modern adaptation A Thousand Acres, which sets the entire story on an Iowa farm. There have been so many adaptations that you can really go down a bit of a King Lear rabbit hole if you so desire, and my only caveat would be that you try out a few before you settle your opinion about this play. As with most Shakespeare, your enjoyment will largely depend on the production, so if you get stuck with a bad one, just remember it's almost certainly not Shakespeare's fault. As always, I'll leave links to everything I've discussed on the show page. That's it for this episode of Shakespeare on Bard. Next up, one of Shakespeare's most unproduced plays, it's time for Time in of Athens. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare on Bard. For more information, please check out www.joelfishbane.net. There you can find all the episodes of Shakespeare and Bard, and you can also find out more information about what I do with my time. You can also get information on how to get your hands on my book, The Thunder of Giants, a novel published by St. Martin's Press. It's about two eight-foot-tall women who struggle to survive in a world too small to contain them. Pick up your copy today, preferably at full price. That's it for Shakespeare and Bard. 28 plays down, 10 to go. Will Shakespeare as a play. Let's go and cough through it. <laughs>